Okay, let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is truth. We thank you for the way in which it reveals to us your character and the way in which it reveals the character of your Son. We thank you that it, it is a double-edged sword and it speaks and cuts to the quick, it gets to the point, helps us understand ourselves and the world in which we live in. And also helps us understand how you might want us to be rooted in you and to live for you. So I pray that as we read your word today, that we will not be crushed by it, but that we will be changed by it. Thank you for the way in which your word um, speaks the same word as, uh, into each of our lives, but in different ways so that it helps us um, to face the individual challenges. Father, we thank you that, you're, that you know every situation that we have been in this week and that your word can speak into it. So, Lord, take my words, I pray, uh, the words that I have prepared to explain your word, which is unchanging, and I pray that it will be the meaning and the purpose of your unchanging word that will rest with us and not my words. So we ask this in your name, in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, if you don't know me, I'm Jez. Um, it's great to be uh, with you this evening. Let me just ask you a question. Do you know this man? No, it's not Terry. Uh, there we are. Do you know who that man is? Well, maybe if you were born in my uh, time of life, you might recognise th this man. Um, I know John will totally recognise who this man is. Sorry, it's not because of his age, but it's because of his interests. Um, well, back in the uh, 90s and um, late 90s and early 2000s, this man was a global superstar. Uh, as a teenager, he was a, a world champion. As a, in his early 20s, he uh, battled and beat cancer and then set up multiple charities to help people through uh, those who had survived cancer through. This man was an absolute legend, revered by everyone. But in 2010, uh, 10 years ago, this man's world finally came tumbling down. This man had persistently denied taking drugs to enhance his performance. This guy won the Tour de France seven times. This man had persistently said no. And in fact, not only has he said no, that he had not been doping, he vilified and attacked anybody who attacked him. His power in the sport uh, was impressive in such a way that those, the powers that be, did not want to lose him out of the sport. And the powers of B seemingly probably knew that he was taking, or many people were taking, performance-enhancing drugs. Um, but no one defended themselves like this man did. Um, Rumours and allegations had dogged him, but he'd rejected them. This man, this man, for many people, was an example, a shining example of honesty and goodness, and so when on that fateful day, I don't know why he chose to do it on Oprah, but on Oprah, he finally admitted 
that every, what other people had been saying that he had been denying was true, this man's fake character was revealed. His name was Lance Armstrong. He'd been an idol to many, and then within 48 hours, he was demonized. And it just reminds us or tells us of the value of honesty in our culture, isn't it? We, we like to put people up on a pedestal. We, we want to uh, think that there is something good and honest about everyone in, in the world. And particularly with Lance Armstrong, because of his feats, um, he was in that special place. And it seemed that this man had fallen or did fall a long way. And many people were hurt by his dishonesty. And I think honesty is, is something, like I said, that we value and is valued in all culture. Here's a few sayings from uh, various different cultures. This is a Burmese um, proverb. If you really want honesty, then don't ask questions you don't really want the answers to. A Portuguese proverb says this, an honest man's word is as good as the king's. A Serbian proverb says this, you're not being honest if you burn your tongue and don't tell anyone else that the soup is hot. <laughs> this is, well, they said this is an American proverb. People from America tell me if it's true. Honesty is like an icicle. If, if once it mounts, that it is at an end. So I don't know if that's something that people say in America. This is what the website said. Anyway, uh, and then finally, just a traditional proverb. It doesn't say which country it's from. The first step towards greatness is to be honest. Now, it seems that our culture or many cultures have an interested and complicated relationship with honesty, dishonesty, and thus the truth. In one sense, we uh, do not like to be lied to. Has anyone had that experience of being lied to? It was only a small one, but to you it felt massive. It felt like a betrayal, that someone had tried to twist the truth in some way to, um, to, to um, get you on their side or maybe to get their own way. We feel that, that lying, that dishonesty very, very strongly as human beings. But then on the other hand, you know, a little white lie, maybe just leaving some stuff out, it's not too bad. Is not as bad as it could be. And certainly this is what we would read in our, in our press and what we'd see in our press, the way in which we might deal with someone's dishonesty. For instance, take an example in, 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 a, in a football game and when somebody you know, cheats to, um, and is dishonest in their actions, um, they might get praised. It's a professional foul, brilliant, that was great. Yes, he took one for the team there. Um, that was a really great thing to do. Or, you know, they might dive and get a penalty and win one for your team. And if it's your team, you might be like, oh, that wasn't great, but at least we got the penalty, at least we scored, and at least we won. Um, so there's this complicated relationship with honesty that our culture has, that we, that we have with, with honesty. And if, if we are completely honest with ourselves, we'll recognize that we too struggle with being honest. It's... It's a struggle of every human being to follow the truth, to live by the very standards that we set ourselves, let alone the standards that God sets for us. And what we're going to see today is Jesus dealing 
with this issue of, of honesty. Now, you might think, well, this must have been a big issue in Jesus' day because maybe honesty isn't the biggest issue that our world faces today. And, and yet the reality is that honesty, truth, lying is at the very heart of, um, of God's character, that God is truth. And so therefore, it absolutely matters our relationship to the truth, the way in which we handle truth, the way in which we deal with other people in honest ways and truthful ways. Uh, we're going to see Jesus um, gets angry with the Pharisees at a number of points through his life, and often it's because of their dishonesty and the way in which they take advantage. And there's a relationship here between um, dishonesty and injustice. And I think that's what really gets Jesus' goats over and over again with the Pharisees, that they say they're doing one thing that's good for the people, but really they're doing something else which is good for them. They're, they're dealing with dishonest gains. I don't know if you remember when Jesus goes into the temple and he throws over the, over the, the tables. What, and what was that about? It was about dishonest gain. People were taking religious um, processes and making money out of it and making it difficult for people to come to offer something to, to, to their God. So God absolutely hates dishonesty. He hates lying. Now, we've said this before uh, when I was just talking on being angry. Like, these words for Jesus that we read now, they're radical. And they are absolutely scary if we don't know about grace. If you read these words and you see the standard that God sets for us, we'll be absolutely scared to death because He's perfect in all his ways, and we know we're not perfect in all our ways. And therefore, if we were to stand before a holy God without Jesus, we would be in trouble. So in some ways, in some way, it's right that there should be an element of fear in us in this regard. We want to be like Christ. But on the other hand, there should be no fear in us. Why? Because we have Christ, and he is the one who vouches for us. So as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisees over and over again have been trying to re kind of reduce or at least limit the meaning of the uh, Messianic Code, the uh, Moses' law, as it were. And in doing so, they were basically trying to make it easy so that each person would be able to keep it so they would have a righteousness in their actions and not, in their, um, and not by grace. And so in doing so, what they did was they really made a yoke and a burden for the people that they couldn't keep. Because even though they reduced it and made it less, it was still impossible for them to keep it because it, the standard was way too high. So in this regard, they, they reduced the standard of what it means to, be, to lie to just perjury. As in, that means willfully trying to deceive somebody. And so they limit it and say, this is all it means. But still, even in that regard, the, um, the Pharisees uh, made it just so impossible for those who want to follow God to follow God because the righteousness of the requirement of God's law cannot be met by humans. We just can't meet it on our own. But Jesus, on the other hand, he says of his 
yoke of his burden. He says, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. What does he mean by that? Well, he's going to say, look, I'm the one who's going to go and die on the cross. I'm going to make it possible for you to come to God, not through your works or through your actions, but through my work and my actions. And therefore, what you need to do is you need to put your faith in me. You put your trust in me and therefore his yoke is easy and his burden is light. This should be great news for us because we recognize, even if we just take this issue of being honest, how many times this week have we not been totally honest? Maybe it's just holding back something that we should be saying to somebody else. Maybe... It's um, uh, a particular situation at work or at college or with a friend. And you know you probably should say what you mean, but you don't. You kind of skirt it round to make it look better for you or to make it look better for them. Maybe you, you minimize or you exaggerate or you twist or you distort. I would have thought every single one of us this week would have found it quite difficult to be honest honest in our speech and honest in our actions. And it is such an important issue for us as Christians, this idea of truthfulness in our speech. James talks about this where he says the tongue uh, is like can create a massive wildfire if not put under control. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. So much damage can be done here with just a very small member of the body, the tongue, speaking in a way that is not truthful and honest. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, just unpack this passage in three, three very simple ways and then uh, give, us, um, the, um, give us some implications for this. First, we're going to look at what did, this, what did this law originally mean? What did the Pharisees say it means? What, did, what was Jesus teaching in terms of correcting this? So verse 33, if you've got your Bibles or your apps there, please open up verse 33. Uh, it's on the, on the screen here. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall, perfor but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So this is not a direct quote from the Old Testament, but it's uh, a sort of compilation of Old Testament teachers, a kind of summary of the law uh, over the Old Testament when it comes to particularly making oaths. And there are a whole number of verses around this. And here's just four that might give us a kind of picture of the way in which um, Jesus is bringing this teaching to, together. So Exodus 20 uh, verse uh, 7, it says, You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold himself guiltless who takes his name in vain. So there's this idea here that uh, swearing against God and not doing what you say is taking his name in vain. Leviticus 19 verse 12 says, You shall not swear by the name, my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 30 verse 2 says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself with a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall, not, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Again, being very clear. 
if you say something, if you make a promise or an oath, or you say you're going to do something, then you should do exactly what comes out of your mouth. And then finally, Deuteronomy 23 verse 21 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So the point of oaths in the Mosaic law was really to encourage truthfulness and faithfulness, to make sure and solemn that you would do something. And so uh, the purpose here is that he wants to make sure uh, when, we take, when we do something that it's, we solemnly declare that we're going to do something that we say that we're, we're going to do. So what we're going to see in a minute with the Pharisees is they turned it into some sort of formula, a way of getting around being truthful and honest, to be fair. And so we see that Jesus does, and that God does, doesn't mind oaths because in Hebrews 6, Verse 17, 17 talks about God making an oath. It says, because God wanted, to make an God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to his heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. So oaths in themselves are not wrong, but the way in which the, the Pharisee were, were using it or using it to get away uh, uh, with being untruthful was the opposite in the purpose that they were set. And so this is what the Pharisees were up to. They were saying, look, it says that we shouldn't um, take the Lord's name in vain. So if we come up with some ways of making an oath that is not directly linked to God's name, or we swear on various other things, and they came up with all these additional laws that you could do, oh, and, and Jesus sort of brings them out in, in a little bit. Well, if you swear on the earth, or in heaven, that's not quite the same. Or if you swear on the altar, but not the gift on the altar, then that's one's binding, the other one's not binding. Ultimately, it's a, it was a way of them being unjust in their dealings with other people. And so for them, it was the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law that was limiting their interpretation, which meant that rather than truthfulness being upheld, it gave an excuse for being untruthful. So they limited this idea of perjury, the offence of willingly telling an untruth or making a misrepresentation under oath. That's, that's what they said. That's what it means. So long as we don't do that, we're okay. Now, perjury was a terrible thing, they would say. It was a horrendous sin in their eyes. But everything up to it, was okay. Now we've seen this over and over again, haven't we? Um, in the teaching so far, that with anger, you know, you could um, you could uh, speak terribly about a man, you could ruin his reputation, but as long as you didn't kill him, you didn't break the law. And that's all the Pharisees cared about. And Jesus gets extremely angry with the Pharisees about it because they're making this burden for people that can't be kept. And he says to them later on that um, because of their mockery of the law, he says to them, um, this is from uh, Matthew 23, 16 to, to 22, where he, he covers this same sort of subject a bit later on. He says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. 
You blind fools, Jesus says to them. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that, was, that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So if who swears by the altar swears by it, and, whoever, and, ev- and by e- everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits on it. Jesus exposes the reality of this faulty thinking that leads them to look like they're righteous on the outside, but they're utterly dirty on the inside. You know, and Jesus didn't just come to clean us up on the outside. He came to clean us up on the inside. And the fact, what the Pharisees were doing was trying to create this righteousness for the people, which meant they were actually became enslaved to the law rather than freed by Um, God's grace as they sought to come to that place of the altar and offer sacrifices for the fact that they couldn't keep the law. And this was something that really made Jesus angry. And in verse 34 in this passage, he says the same thing again. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Well, what is he saying? He's saying, look, your vows, the actual precise wording of your vows are irrelevant. Why? Because when you promise to do something, whatever you promise on, you can trace it back to God. Yeah? You can trace it back to God. So if you want to, um, if, if you want to um, swear an oath by heaven, well, what is heaven? It's the throne of God. Well, if you want to swear uh, by the earth, uh, well, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's his footstool. And if you want to swear by Jerusalem, well, that is the city of the great king. And if you want to swear by the hairs on your head, well, actually, who put the hairs on your head there? God did. And you can't change one of them or change it from one color to another color or even to make them grow. So he's saying, look, the precise wording of your vows, the way in which you try to deal um, deliberately um, Um, what's the right word? Um, I can't think of the right word. Um, Deceivingly to to folks, God knows. God knows what you say and when you say it and when you swear, when you made your word. And this is why Jesus is saying uh, basically here, do not take an oath at all. Um, Now, it's not that oaths themselves are bad because there are a number of occasions where it seems right and good to take an oath before God. Um, it happens in court. Ask people to swear on the Bible and take a, uh, an oath. The Bible, it happens in marriage, doesn't it? You make vows to one another and you do it in the sight of the Lord. So I don't think Jesus, even though he sounds like he's saying don't take an oath at all, that he's saying don't ever make an oath. I think he's saying in these sort of circumstances where your dealings with people, whether it's business or friendship, um, when you say you're going to do something, you keep on popping out these 
these oaths to almost validate yourself, almost try to win people's support by, by, by saying, oh, I swear on heaven I'll do it. He's saying, look, in just everyday cases of a relationship, let your word be your bond. Let your character that's expressed in your word be the reality of what it means to be people of God. And this is what he says in verse 37. Let what you say be simple, a yes or a no. Anything more than this comes from evil. James says the same thing in, in chapter 5 of his epistle. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by anything, any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall under condemnation. We keep our promises not because we say the right thing or make a promise against something, but because, as we've already seen in, um, in the, the Beatitudes, that we are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This honesty, this promise-keeping comes out about who God has made us to be. Jesus says, anything more comes from, the, from evil or from the evil one. What does he mean by that? He's saying, basically, the way you use your oath is to deceive people, not to be honest. And you, you try to find ways of getting out of being honest and keeping your word. And it's not good, it's not right, and it comes from the evil one. This doesn't come from God. You've twisted it completely around. Rather than be a way of, of keeping being honest and truthful, now it's become a means of being untruthful. Okay, so what are the implications for this for us? Well, I've got four simple ones, and we'll go through these together. First one is this. Being truthful is a problem for everyone because our heart of flesh is deceitfully wicked. I think we've just got to be honest, haven't we, straight away and say, the standard that Jesus sets here of always keeping our word is too high for us. It's too high for us in our flesh. Why? Because our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Um, Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the answer is, well, we can, but God does. Again, in Mark, he talks about the heart and the problem of the heart. He says, within the heart, out of man's heart comes evil thoughts, sex sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evils come from within and defile a person. So we, this is a heart issue for us. This is not just an outworking issue of not being truthful, but there's something going on deep inside of our hearts that makes it extremely dif difficult. I think Galatians 5.17 really gives us a handle on what it's like to be a Christian. It's this battle taking place within us between the flesh and the spirit. And in verse 17, he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So every single one of us, as we think about being truthful, how, how do we be, 
What is stopping us being truthful? Well, it's a battle that's taking place in the heart. And how do we understand how we have victory over this, this battle that's taking place in our heart? Is really to understand this idea of the battle being won, uh, so the, the war being won, but the battle taking place, continue to take place. So Christ has won the battle and he has given us a new heart, but not every part of our heart has come under conformity to Christ. So we live in this reality of the here and now and the not yet. We live in the reality of being righteous before God and yet not living righteous before God. And the only way to make sense of that is God's grace. If you don't have God's grace, you'll forever be in condemnation, shame and guilt as a Christian. It makes me think this idea, this battle that takes place in the flesh of a, of a, of a true story of a Japanese soldier. You may know it. He refused to surrender at the end of World War II and spent 28 years in the jungle. His name was Horatio Ondela, and he was in an island in the Philippines. And until 1974, uh, he did not believe, he would not believe that the war was over. He was finally persuaded to emerge from the jungle um, after an aging former captain who'd given him the order came and personally rescinded the order from this guy. And when he was interviewed by um, ABC News in 2010, he said this, every Japanese soldier was prepared for death. But, but as an intelligence officer, I, uh, officer, I was ordered to con conduct guerrilla warfare and to not die. Uh, he says, I became an officer and I received an order and if I, uh, and if I ca carried, could not carry it out, I would feel shame. I'm very competitive, he said. But eventually he was told the war is over and these orders were rescinded. This, the war, you know, it, it, it makes me think about what it's like to be a Christian. In one sense, the war is over and yet the flesh has not completely been conformed. We're like this man in the jungle. Jesus has won a victory for us, but we've got to take hold of it. We've got to step out of that jungle and take hold of what Christ has done. I think for us as it relates to being truthful, it's recognizing that day after day, we might have to come before the Lord in confession and renewal of faith in him and, conf and, and confess to him that we are not always honest in our speech or, or, or trustworthy in our dealings. That there are times where we manipulate situations quite honestly for our own good. Um, we present ourselves in ways that are better for, our, for ourselves. Or when we promise to do something, we don't do it because to do so is a personal inconvenience. I don't know about you, but there are times, honestly, where I grade lies from big to small or ways of dealing with honesty from big to small. Here's six different ways that we might do it. The first one is omission. You might just leave something out <laughs> um, on purpose. 
it's, it's less, it's easier, it's less risky. We're having a conversation with somebody. We know that it's going to be awkward if we say something that's true to them, or maybe we don't quite know how to say it. So you know what? We just leave it out. Second one is restructuring. We kind of distort the context. We say something that's true, but we come at it from a different angle so that it presents a truth that is not untrue, but it's not totally the truth. Maybe examples here might be saying something in sarcasm or changing the, the character in, in a story or altering the scene. The third one is denial, refusing to acknowledge truth. Where we, somebody speaks something to us and we like, we'll say, no, that's just not true. We'll not listen to people and we'll deny that it took place. Another one is minimalization. We reduce the effects of a mistake or a fault or a judgment call. We just make it less than it is. Or the opposite, we, extra we um, uh, make it bigger. Uh, extravagation, is that the right word? We present it greater and better. Uh, we, we tell stories, but we just embellish them, make them make ourselves look bigger in them or the situation more dangerous or um, more grand than it truly was. Or maybe just fabrication. We just basically make up a story for ourselves. The first step in our battle to freedom in Christ in this is to admit that this is a struggle for us. Because if we don't, we, we won't be able to, well, one, we're not being honest with ourselves, but two, we will not be able to take hold of the grace of God. The second step in our fight um, for truth is about accepting who we are. Christ's grace has come to us and made a difference to us. We are now people of the truth because he is the truth. We are now sons and daughters of God, who is the truth. We're brothers and sisters of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We're now filled with the spirit of truth. Something has taken place that has changed our relationship to the truth. And therefore, we should or desire to be people who live by um, the truth. This idea of it now being a characteristic of who we are. God designed us to be people who are reconciled to the truth, whose identity is in being truthful people because he is the truth. And why, why does he want us to be people of the truth? Well, he wants us to be people of truth because it brings joy, it brings blessing to us, but also to, to, to humanity. There's something beautiful and, and, and lovely about the truth. It makes sense of life. So we are people of the truth. Thirdly, by God's grace, we seek to love and live the truth. This is the third step. Now we know our relationship to the truth, that we are not always honest. We now know that who we are in God, that we are people of the truth. Now we can seek to live the truth and love the truth. And... This is something that's just terribly hard in our society where truth is increasingly more like a fairy tale, an outdated idea uh, in our culture where people say, well, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth or where they shout whatever to you as you try to live 
by a certain way of the truth. And of course, we want to be tolerant of other people and their view on truth. But at the same time, we need to be those who really love what is true because it makes a huge difference to how we live our lives and how people see who God is. And that was one of the other things that really angered Jesus about the Pharisees is that people looked to the Pharisees to find out what God was like. And when they looked at him, they saw hypocrites. And so we want to be those who live the truth. And then finally, by God's grace, we're going to need to rest by faith in the one who is the truth. So we recognize that we our relationship to the truth is a tricky one and we fail. We recognize that we now have been made sons and daughters of the truth. So uh, we've got a new relationship to the truth. Now we want to live that out and live and love the truth. But then we recognize that we're going to fail. So we need to rest in the one who is the truth. You will fail in your quest to be truthful on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis. God's standard is too high for you to reach. Now, don't hear that as an excuse not to seek the truth. No, we want to love the truth and live the truth, but you've got to accept that you will fail. And we need to keep on returning to that place of grace, that it's not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that leads us to a relationship with him. We have to remember that it's the truth that sets us free, no longer to be condemned by um, the standard that we can't reach. And it was for freedom that he set us free, that we might live and enjoy our life. So Jesus here helps us understand that truthfulness is of utmost importance to God. He hates lying. He hates dishonesty. He hates uh, us saying one thing and not keeping our promise. The standard is high. He is the truth, therefore he loves truth. Why? Because truth sets you free. But we will fail. And as we fail, we need to come day after day to rest in the truth, to confess our need for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I recognize that sometimes these words are not, they're not easy words, they're hard words to hear from Jesus. And quite honestly, it's hard to admit that we, even though we love you, are those who have a tricky relationship with, with truth that we many, many times are dishonest in our words in different ways. Father, we pray that you'd help us to have our hope in you and not in ourselves, that we might strive to be honest people because you are honest and good, but at the same time, that we will confess and admit our failings so that we might receive the grace that brought us to you and the grace that sets us free day by day. Lord, we just ask this in your name. Amen.